Uh, good to have everybody again this morning. It's cold out there. Somebody turned down the thermostat out front, which I guess is okay, or outside, so I guess that's okay. It is winter after all, so we, we need to get, get on with this. I, I, don't, I asked at my table, uh, how many of you read this passage before we get here, and how many of you wait until after? It was 50-50, some before, some after. Everyone who read this passage before we got here this morning has questions. You got to. I mean, this is a tough, tough passage. What does this mean? So we especially need Dan's prayers and your prayers in order to uh, rightly understand it and rightly apply it. We can't apply it correctly until we understand it correctly. So it is uh, very important that we, we take a, a good, hard, large, hard look at this text. As you recall from last time, uh, we, we started this subject of the author of the Hebrews kind of wanted to call a timeout. We're getting, we're moving along here. I'm kind of teaching you some things that I think you need to understand in order rightly to put together the Old Testament and the New Testament. I want you to understand how Christ is the fulfillment of all of it. And he's just begun to speak about a priest, a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And he said, whoa, stop. Well, I, I can't even go further on this because... You have become dull of hearing. You're not paying attention. You're not able to, I'm afraid you're just going to roll your eyes and shut me off when I start saying there is a better priest than their ironic priest that you're used to. And uh, that's because that's on you. And so I am calling us to move on to maturity. And so I'm going to talk about Melchizedek. But in this interim period before he gets back to Melchizedek in chapter, into chapter 6, beginning of chapter 7, he is going to warn them of the danger of trying to just stand still in the Christian life. Of just, I want to stay in my Judaism. I want to stay in my comfortable, traditional religion. And he's saying, you can't do that. You're either going to sink or swim. And what's it going to be? You cannot just tread water and stand still in the Christian life. So he calls them on to maturity. And he has a little bit of rebuke or exhortation to it. My wife listened to last week's uh, lesson, which... Um, it's kind of scary. I realized, oh, people can do that? People can let women can listen to that? Oh. Uh, so that made me a little nervous. But, but she said, you sounded angry. I mean, you sounded, it was a different tone. I didn't like that. Uh, and she's probably right, but I think that's the tone of the text a little bit of, of a strong exhortation, a strong warning to get with the program. You've spent way too long in infancy. Grow up. Stop being babies and start being adults. Forget about the milk diet. He needs some solid food in order to become solid Christians. You spent way too long in elementary school. Let's put the elementary stuff behind. You've already got a firm foundation, a good foundation. Let's move on to maturity. And uh, so that's, uh, that's, that's what we got from last time. Uh, from this time, uh, I wanted to... Uh, Make the segue with, with uh, chapter uh, 6, verse 3. Uh, and so we're going to pick up, I'm going to read the text, which is Hebrews 6, 4 through 12. But I'm going to start with Hebrews 6, verse 1, just so you can see that continuation of it's a call to move on to maturity. And then there's a little bit of hope after this strong rebuke or warning, at least, exhortation. Uh, there's a little bit of hope of, hey, and we're going to get there. We're going to move on to maturity together if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills? What, what do you mean? How, why would the Lord not will that we would all grow in maturity? Or if the Lord permits, why would the Lord not want us to grow all to grow to maturity? 
well, there is this, this one other danger out there. So keep reading. I want you to be comfortable. Hey, guys, we're going to get there. Don't worry about it too much, but I don't want you to get too comfortable because some people have gotten too comfortable to the everlasting perishing of their souls. What are you saying? Are you saying what we can, we can fall away from Christ? We can lose our salvation? Well, let's keep reading. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we need Dan's prayer. We need the prayers that many have prayed for our lesson this morning before even getting here. But we need to pray once again, having just read your word, that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things out of your revelation to us. Would you please take away that sluggishness, that dullness of hearing that is natural to our flesh and replace it with an earnestness to learn from you whatever you want to say so that with Samuel long ago we say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. We ask for this supernatural help of your Holy Spirit because of our great need and because we want our lives to count for your great glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We read the passage, it does raise questions about this possibility of falling away finally from a relationship with Jesus and we wonder what's, what's going on here? Well, it's pretty clear that what's going on in verses 4 through 12 is a discussion of falling away or apostasy, what, what, this falling away, that, that's clear. What's not exactly clear is what he's saying about following, falling away all the way through. The answer is there. There's no question about it. The answer is there. It's just, what are the questions that are, that are being answered? All right, so I want to take a, a cue 
from a game show that all of you know. In fact, if I start it, you will immediately know just from the music. Dum, 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 dum. Do you know that that lasts exactly 30 seconds? That that music is called Think? That that music has made for its composer, Merv Griffin, the, the one who invented Jeopardy, in royalties over his lifetime. Just that 30-second song. How much would you think he's made in royalties over that? At the time of the writing of the highly trustworthy Wikipedia page on the question, <laughs> Merv Griffin reported on one of the interviews that he had, he had made probably $70 million over the years just on royalties on that 30-second clip called Think. Dad, gummit, 30-second little clip. <laughs> and that's not to mention how much he has made on the syndicated rights to this show that he started in 1964 and is still on TV. That's incredible. A man has made a lot. And that's not his only game show. Anyway, it boggles the mind. But it's his wife who gets the credit for coming up with the concept. That she said, you know, there's all this, there had been scandals in quiz shows about cheating that was going on. She said, we need to, you know, shake it up a little bit. What would you think about having a quiz show where we give the answers and then the contestant has to come up with a question? And she gave him a couple of examples and he went, oh, it's awesome. Let's do it. And he took it to NBC and NBC went for it. And then later it became syndicated and then it became syndicated again beginning in 1984 with Alex Trebek and... 1984, you think that's 20 years after it started, but that's a whole long time ago. Well, here was the concept. Here's the answer. Now, what was the question? In Hebrews 6, 4 through 12, we're given an answer to falling away. But that's a little bit too broad and too vague for us, and so we can be grateful that the author of Hebrews is actually giving us the answer to three questions. And here's my shot for double jeopardy and the winning lightning round and whatever else uh, happened with that game show. Uh, here's my uh, suggestion as to what are the three questions. Falling away is the subject. You're in that falling away category. But here are the questions. In chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, from what are we falling away? Falling away from what? In verses 7 and 8, like what? Give me an analogy. Give me an illustration. Help me understand. This is pretty heavy-duty doctrine you've given us in 4 through 6. Now can you break it down and bring it down to a common everyday analogy that I can follow? Verses 7 and 8. And then, so what? In verses 9 through 12. Falling away from what? Like what? And so what? So if you lose your place, that's how you'll find your place again. That's where we're going. We're going to answer three questions to which Hebrews 6, 4 through 12, gives us the answers. All right, let's, let's begin. Falling away from what? Now, unlike Jeopardy, i got to give you a, a multiple choice here because in the history of interpretation of this very and admittedly difficult text, there have been a number of different answers. Uh, answer number one has this possibility. Falling away from genuine faith and repentance. In other words, the people who are in view in verses 4 through 6 are genuine Christians. They have been converted to the Lord Jesus Christ, received the Holy Spirit, and walked with Him for quite a significant period of time, and then they fall away. 
Now, even within that camp, and we're going to see there are other multiple choice answers, there are two variations on that theme. Uh, the first variation on the theme of that they are falling away from true faith and repentance is that they're falling away hypothetically. In other words, it, it's not uh, really happening. It's not really a possibility that you could lose your salvation, uh, but it's a, a hypothetical case that he gives in verses 4 through 6. The other possibility to the hypothetical case is that, no, it's, it's an actual case of true believers who have experienced the conditions that are supplied in verses 5 and 6, and they've fallen away. And once they fall away, it's impossible to bring them back. So that's a scary possibility for everyone here who believes, I know Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. Will you still know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior a year from now? Well, of course. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Yeah, but is that right, or was that just Fanny Crosby's uh, song that she wrote to promote the Baptist mission to try to win more folks than the Methodists who believe that you could lose your salvation? The Baptists were creating a market distinction on the frontier that, no, you cannot lose your salvation, and so that was just an attempt to try to grab more people that way. That's cynical. That's wrong, I think. But... Is it blessed assurance Jesus is mine, or he is now, today, but a year from now, all bets are off. All right, what about the hypothetical option? You read this text and you just don't think it's talking about a hypothetical, because what would be the value of a hypothetical case to the readers? Now, again, there are two possibilities, and don't we're digging in down deep into the weeds now, so you don't have to get all this, but... One possibility says that both the author of Hebrews and the readers of Hebrews know it's hypothetical. They know it can't happen. You can't become a Christian and then lose your salvation and fall away. It can't happen. But, well, but what if it could? What if, hypothetically, and it doesn't have the power of a strong warning because it can't happen. Others say, well, the author of the letter to the Hebrews knows that it's hypothetical, but the readers don't. So it will have its force because they're not sure. They don't, they're not fully taught yet. They, they think, oh, maybe it could happen. He knows it can't happen. It's hypothetical, but they don't know. That sounds deceptive for an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ or somebody who is writing uh, under the imprimatur of an apostle. I, I don't think that deception would be valid. And I don't think he would use that. He always said, well, I know, I'll fake them off here. I know they're going to be scared to death of this, so I'm going to put it in there even though I know it's a hypothetical. It just doesn't sound hypothetical. It sounds like a real possibility. It accounts for the tone shift that occurred with chapter 5, verse 11, and extends uh, until uh, after this text even. A tone shift from, hey, we're sailing along talking about the superiority of Jesus over angels, over Aaron as a high priest, over... And now, wait, i got to stop and i got to warn you of a very real, not a hypothetical, a very real danger. So I've tipped my hand. You see where I'm coming from. This is not hypothetical, I don't think. He's not talking about genuine faith and repentance, whether hypothetical or actual. How do you know it's not actual? Because of so many other verses and so many other places of Scripture. These things have I written unto you who believe on the name of the Son of God, says John in his first letter, that you may know 
that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. In his gospel, he said, quoting Jesus, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. Has it now, will not lose it, because again in that gospel of John, no one can pluck them out of my hand. Jesus holds us much more tightly than we hold on to him. He's got us. He will see us safely home. He who began a good work in you, says Paul in Philippians 1.6, will surely begin, will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. Having begun it, he's going to finish it. So unless we want to say that Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, is contradictory to so much other scripture that we have read from John, from Peter, and from Paul, and from other uh, authors of scripture, it doesn't seem possible that a true believer could fall away finally and irrevocably. So what's our other option? All right, falling away from what could be falling away from genuine faith and repentance, or it could be falling away from merely professed faith and repentance. In other words, the person says, I believe in Jesus. The person may even believe at that point in his or her life, I believe in Jesus. But in fact, subsequent events will show that person never had a genuine, full, saving faith and repentance, never truly knew the Lord, never was born again, never was baptized in the Holy Spirit, never was sealed by the Holy Spirit, but may have thought she was or he was, and we may have thought he was or she was. What's the evidence for that view? Well, we're going to look at uh, greater length at the description that is given to us here of this particular person. It is impossible, verse 4, in the case of those who have once been enlightened. That's the first of four verbs describing this particular case. Whether hypothetical or actual, there are four verbs that are used to describe it, and we have to decide of whom are those verbs descriptive. Once been enlightened. In 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 7, John picks up this theme that's very common to him of light and darkness, that in him was light, uh, that, that the light, the true light that enlightens every human being was coming into the world, he says in the Gospel of John chapter 1. In the first letter of John chapter 1, he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light, the previous verse, if we say we have fellowship with him, with Jesus, while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. We are deceived. If we think that we're walking in the light or that we know Jesus and know God through Jesus and yet we walk in darkness, we're deceived. We're liars and we don't get it. So this once enlightened is talking about a glimpse, but not a gaze at Jesus. The light was, was shown over there. It's like the flashlight in a dark room, and all of a sudden, oh, I see it, but you didn't really get to see it. You saw a glimpse, but you didn't gaze on Jesus. You didn't see it, and the full light turned on, and now I get to look at him and to ponder him and to understand all of the beauties of who he is that 
his, um, as Dick Kane will tell us a thousand times, unveil your beauties to our sight that we might love you more. Well, that kind of unveiling isn't happening here. It's just, I got a glimpse. They were once enlightened, once enlightened, but then uh, what, what happened? Um, I'll tell you what happened, according to John, to some people of this category. They went out from us, but they were never of us. That's 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. That it might become plain. It looked like they're true believers, these false teachers that went out from 1 John. Many opportunities are examples. We'll see more as we go along of false teachers of those who looked like they were sheep, but they were really wolves in sheep's clothing. How can we tell? Well, did they continue with us? And we can tell in other ways that are going to be coming up. All we need to understand here is having once been enlightened does not necessarily mean that they fully experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that they fully experienced new life in Christ. They got a gaze, or they got a glimpse, but they didn't, they didn't gaze. Second verb that's used. Tasted the heavenly gift. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift. They've tasted the heavenly gift. That sounds to some people as though they have truly um, taken in Christ. They have fed on Christ. Some see here a, a reference to the Lord's Supper and they also will see a reference to baptism under the once been enlightened. And so it sounds like full participation in Christ, although we quickly remember that, no, I can think of people who were baptized in the visible church and who took the Lord's Supper with us week after week after week, but they weren't truly and fully and thoroughly converted. So again, this verse is talking about a taste and not a full satisfying meal. It's just a little taste. And when you give someone a taste of something, that doesn't mean they're, they're going to swallow it. That doesn't mean that they're going to eat the rest of what's on their plate. They may spit it out. And in fact, that's what happens here. They've tasted, they've tasted, but they haven't fully savored. Third verb that's used, shared in the Holy Spirit. Oh, wait, uh, one other thing. I need to just qualify another passage of Scripture that's valuable for us. I mean, you keep your finger on Hebrews chapter 6. That's where we're staying. You don't have to make these rabbit trails with me. However, this is a very, very important interp uh, interpretive principle. That we ought to interpret the unclear parts of Scripture by the clear. Knowing as we do that the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, is inspired by God. There is one author, the Holy Spirit, who cannot lie. In fact, we'll look at impossible a little bit later. But in this very chapter, it's going to say, next week we'll see, it is impossible for God to lie. He's not going to contradict himself. So if this passage is unclear, let's interpret it in the light of those passages that are clear. So what does it mean that they tasted the heavenly gift? Does that necessarily mean that they were fully and thoroughly created, um, converted? Uh, no, not necessarily. Listen to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. 
for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Most of them didn't make it into the promised land. Most of them rebelled at Kadesh Barnea against the Lord and against his promise, and they, they turned back. But they all had the same experiences of blessing in the visible church of the old covenant. They all, you know, tasted the same spiritual food, the same spirit. They had the manna. They had the quail. They had all of this water out of a rock. They had all of these blessings, these incredible blessings, but they weren't saved. Now, many of them were through their trust in Christ, who was that rock, but many weren't. So the, the experience of tasting does not necessarily entail the full experience of savoring that meal. All right, now we can move on. Uh, third verb in these verses that describe the kind of person who has fallen away, shared in the Holy Spirit. Well, there you go. That settles it, doesn't it? Shared in the Holy Spirit. If they had the Holy Spirit, then they must be Christ's. If they've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, then they have been sealed for eternity. But it doesn't say that they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say that they were regenerate by the Holy Spirit. It says that they shared in the Holy Spirit. And that word shared in the Greek has a wide range of meaning, extending from the full participation in, that kind of deep uh, experience of the Holy Spirit that we would think of in terms of baptism of the Holy Spirit. But it also can simply mean associated with. Um, you can remember in Luke chapter 5, Jesus uh, has been teaching, and at the end of his teaching time, it's late morning or whatever, he says to Peter, uh, Peter, let's push out into the lake here and, and let down your nets for a catch. And Jesus, uh, Peter's over there mending the nets. He goes, Gee, hello, carpenter? <laughs> uh, carpenter, you don't know squat about fishing, okay? So we fished all night. It's, just not, it's not a good time for fishing. We, we are professionals. We do this all day, every day. This is how we make our living, or used to, before we started following a carpenter. But at any rate, uh, just because you said it, I'll do it, but... It's ridiculous. So they push out into the deep, put down their nets, and all of a sudden those nets are filled to overflowing and the nets are even breaking because of the numbers and the sizes of the fish that are caught in those nets. And Peter is like, whoa, <laughs> what's happening here? We can't even get it up. And so he yells to the shore to Andrew, uh, his brother, no, to James and John, who were partners with Simon. That's our word here. That they were partakers of the Holy Spirit, they were partakers with Simon. It shows the range of meaning can be very light. It just means associated with Peter and Andrew in some way. Maybe their fishing boats were in the same overall company, the same multinational corporation involved both of them. We don't know. But we know that they were partners with Simon, associated with him. It was just associated. So to be associated then with the Holy Spirit is not saying that I've had this deep baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's just saying that I've been around places where I've seen the Holy Spirit at work. I've seen the operations of the Holy Spirit without a full participation in the Holy Spirit. Can we think of anybody uh, for whom that could have been possible, who shared in the Holy Spirit but didn't was merely associated with it? And the answer is, yes, we can, or at least I can, and you will pretty soon if you haven't already. How about Judas? In, in Luke chapter 9, we see Judas 
as one of the twelve going out on the mission of the twelve when Jesus commissioned them and said, now you go out and I'm going to give you authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick and to preach the gospel. You go out two by two and see how that goes. And so they do. And they see amazing things and they come back going, wow, that's incredible that we could do that. In chapter 10 of Luke, he says, now I'm going to send out 72. So each one of you and your teams of six are going to add six more to your team or you're going to oversee them. You've done it once. Now you're going to train them in doing it. And so the 72 go out and they come back amazed and rejoicing that even the demons were subject to us. To which Jesus says, hey, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So he does understand this, once saved, always saved. He does understand if your name is written in the book, you are secure and saved forever. But how do I know if my name is written in the book? How do I know if my name's written in heaven? Uh, we're coming to that answer. All I'm saying now is Judas experienced a sharing in the Holy Spirit, seeing the activity and the work of the Holy Spirit, benefiting from the work of the Holy Spirit without it being a full participation in the work of the Holy Spirit through regeneration and through ongoing help and sanctification. Fourth verb is familiar. It's tasted again and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Again, you can have a taste without swallowing. You can have a taste without savoring. You can have a taste without fully participating in all that is uh, being offered to you there. It's just a taste. Witness Jesus on the cross. They hold up to him a sponge filled with vinegar wine uh, to dull the pain that he is undergoing. He tastes it and then he refuses it because he doesn't want to have be dulled in the experience of what he's going through. He wants to go through it fully to die for me and for you. So he spits it out. He, he doesn't, but he tastes it. Same word, tastes it but he doesn't fully participate. That's, again, what we're having going on here. He tastes the goodness of the Word of God. Judas tasted the goodness of the Word of God. He heard these amazing things from Jesus' lips. You know at times he said, what an incredible illustration. That is an awesome story. i got to remember that one. I, he saw the effect on the crowds that just kept growing bigger and bigger. And he got a glimpse of the powers of the age to come when he saw the miracles that Jesus did. And he understood that this is something different than anything we've ever seen. I've never seen a rabbi like this before. He would have easily affirmed what Nicodemus said in chapter 3 when he came to Jesus at night. He said, Master, we know that you come from God because nobody could do the deeds that you're doing unless they were sent from God. So Judas saw all of that. But he wasn't fully converted. He fell away. He betrayed the Lord Jesus. It was better for him not to have been born than to have done that. Well, a lot of mysteries there with Judas, but again, we see the possibility that even with these four seemingly strong verbs, they don't necessarily describe one who was genuinely and thoroughly converted through faith and repentance. It could merely be a professed faith and repentance. Um, one other example of this tasting without the full meal and that is not Judas, but Simon the Magician. We encounter him in Acts chapter 8, and I'm going to read just verses 9 to 13 and then uh, the conclusion of the story in 8 to 24. Here's what we find out about him. 
There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. Simon Magus, he's often called. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So, sounds like Simon's in. He baptized, had the outward and visible sign of a change of heart and a cleansing from sin. And he continued with the church for a while and was regarded as a brother. You, wow, we all had this experience together, coming to Jesus. But then... When Peter comes down from Jerusalem, um, in order to confirm this incredible Samaritan Pentecost, Samaritan conversion of of what's happened here, uh, it takes a different turn. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Hey, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Well, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. That's the end of it. So you wonder, was he sincere in asking for that? Did he repent? Did we not? Well, we know he didn't repent in the text. He just said, well, you, hey, pray for me that I don't have those bad things happen. But he didn't repent. He didn't do something to change. He didn't show an outward and clear change. And the tradition of the church, whether reliable or not, it's ancient, was that he was the first arch heretic um, against the Christian faith, which would indicate that he did fall away fell away because he was partially converted or seemed outwardly to be converted, but he wasn't inwardly converted. So you get the concept? Fall away from what? Option A, fall away from genuine faith and repentance, whether hypothetically or actually. Option B, fall away from professed faith and repentance, but not actual, which sounds like Jesus saying, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He says that in Matthew at the beginning, in chapter 7. He says it in Matthew at the end, in chapters 24, 25. It's not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone in the outward and the visible church is truly part of the invisible church. They're known only to God. But he gives us evidence to help us understand whether we are in that number or not in that number. And the author of Hebrews does not want to leave us in doubt about that. So... The author of Hebrews is going to give an encouraging word here eventually, but in the short term, he's giving a slightly discouraging or a frightening word that it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who have been once enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the world to come. It's impossible to bring those people back to repentance. Well, it must then be talking about those who um, are professed faith and repentance, not true faith and repentance. 
Now, there's one other falling from that needs to be discussed from verse 6, and that's falling from second faith and repentance. Is it possible to have a second experience of genuine faith and experience? And the, the thing that, that this verse does for us and helps us is to take away a little bit of the sting of this passage because it seems to fly in the face of the goodness of our God. Verse 6, for these people who have had all these blessings and then fallen away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. It's impossible. Here's what's not impossible. He doesn't say that forgiveness is impossible. It's impossible for God to forgive somebody who has committed this sin. No, it's not. Anyone who repents, anyone who comes to Jesus, he will not cast out. He will forgive. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness every time. This author is not teaching that it's impossible for God to forgive. But the condition for forgiveness is repentance. And it's impossible for this person to demonstrate repentance. Why is that? We'll come to that, but just understand that that's the impossibility of it. The impossibility of a second genuine repentance and faith or even a contrived repentance and faith, this person's not going to repent because of the condition that this person is in. Having experienced these blessings of the outward invisible church and then rejected them. All right, I need to go to another game show here uh, to show uh, where we're going. But uh, Before I get to the game show, though, let me, uh, let me give you one other example of someone who uh, could not be brought back to repentance. It's in the same book. It's in Hebrews again. It's discussing Esau, and it's in Hebrews 12, verses 16 and 17. No one, uh, well, let me read verse 15 to give you the context. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He sought the blessing with tears. He wanted the blessing back that he had given away to Jacob. He wanted it back, but there was no way to get it back. And he sought that blessing with tears. He didn't seek the repentance with tears, the change of heart with tears. He wanted what he had given up, but he didn't want the Lord who had given it to him. Oh, that's Esau. It's, that's the impossibility of that repentance to turn back to it. Now, here is the, is the why, and here's the, here's the game show. Uh, more recent game show. 1999 game show. Started in Great Britain and then made its way across the pond to the United States. So that in August of 1999, we had our first experience of Regis Philbin coming out asking, who wants to be a millionaire? And all of this fancy lighting that would go up and down and music again that also won some award for their music and they got royalties too, I guess. But the catchphrase that is most often associated with who wants to be a millionaire is the catchphrase, is that your final answer? Final answer? 
You can just imagine the legal department back in Great Britain figuring out, we're going to have this show, and we're going to give away a million pounds, but when we give away this million pounds, we, we don't want all these lawsuits. And people say, no, 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 I wasn't what I said. I wasn't ready yet. You know, we need a way of clarifying legally for the legal department that this is the answer. We've got it. We can show the videotape, and the jury will say, no, you said that was your final answer. That constitutes acceptance of the contract. Therefore, uh, you lose. So we got to make this really clear. So the, the lawyers are writing this up, and they come up with these careful, careful phrases. Uh, in other international versions of it, it's, Lock in your answer. You know, you lock in. You got to be clear. So, how do we do it? Final answer. Is this your final answer? Is this your final answer? This crucifying of the Son of God and holding him up to everlasting contempt is the final answer of the people that are in view in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. It's final answer. It's not like, well, I think. It's not like, they, they blew it. They, I, I, had, I wanted to have this affair. I, I don't know what got into me. I, I, I was stupid. I was an idiot. I've cried out to my wife to take me back. I've asked my kids to forgive me, but I went after this other situation, and, oh, I don't know what got into me. But now, please, can I repent? Can I turn? Can I come back? Yeah. Yeah, you can come back from that. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about those who were way down the pike with Jesus. They had been enlightened. They had tasted the heavenly gift. They had been partakers with the Holy Spirit. They tasted the goodness of the word of God, the powers uh, of the word to come. They had done all of that, and then they make their final answer. Here's what the answer is. The answer is to hell with Jesus. The answer is put Jesus back on the cross. Crucify him, not let him go. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. No, crucify him. Crucify him. Is that your final answer? Yes. Hold him up on that cross for everlasting contempt. I know the word of God is true, and I don't care. I know the Holy Spirit is real, and I don't care. I know that there is a judgment yet to come, and I don't care. I'll do it my way. So what does that sound like that Jesus also has talked about, that other writers of Scripture have talked about? It sounds like the unforgivable sin of Mark chapter 3. And you'd be right. That is what it sounds like. And, and that's, uh, in fact, what it is, an unforgivable sin. It's a sin that is committed with eyes wide open. I know that what I'm doing, I'm saying that Jesus is really from the devil when, in fact, he's from the Holy Spirit. But I'm going to say it anyway. And for that sin, Jesus says, you can blaspheme the Son of Man, but you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, it cannot be forgiven. Because you are sinning with your eyes wide open. And Jesus is saying to those particular scribes and Pharisees, and here the author of Hebrews is saying to those particular people who have had those four experiences, those good things, and then have said, crucify him, is that your final answer? And they have said, yes. Why is it impossible to bring them back to repentance? Because they've gone too far. Their hearts have become hard, and they will not ever repent. It's a real possibility that someone could fall away like that. It is not a real possibility that a genuine believer and repenter could do something like that. And we know that because of the illustration that follows. So, falling away from what? From professed faith and repentance. Falling away like what? Give me an example, all right? Verses 6 and 7 of Hebrews um, chapter 6. 
I mean, verses 7 and 8. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So give us an example. Give us an illustration of what you're talking about here. All right, I'll give you an illustration. On the one hand, consider watered land. It's got great water from heaven. Rain has fallen abundantly. It's wonderful. That produces a crop that is useful for those who cultivate it. And then contrast that with watered land, same rain, same benefits, but all it brings forth is thorns and thistles. That's what we're talking about here. Thorns and thistles would call to their minds uh, Genesis chapter 3, part of the curse, far as the curse is found, no more let sin and sorrow um, rain or thorns infest the ground and joy to the world. It's talking about the curse back in Genesis chapter 3. All right, so it's by your fruit, by their fruit, you will know them. You'll know who are the genuine believers and who are the merely professing believers by their fruit, not by their start, not by the green leaves that grow up at first. Hey, it's looking good here. And then you find out that the green leaves turned into thorns and thistles, whereas on the other side, the green leaves turned into wheat, grains, and brought in an abundant harvest. By their fruit, you will know them. That is a familiar agricultural metaphor, not just from the author of Hebrews, but from Jesus himself. In Jesus chapter seven, in Jesus, in Matthew chapter seven, or Matthew chapter 12, you will know a tree by its fruit. So examine the fruit is how you'll know whether it's genuine or whether it is merely professed and spurious. So that's the contrast, the genuine and the spurious. The good things, yeah, it had a lot of good things going for them, but it didn't bring forth the, the fruit. And Jesus tells another parable. It's, again, all of these, they're so similar, many different agricultural metaphors about a sower went out to sow, and he sowed his seed on four different kinds of soil, and only one of them brought forth fruit. And I don't know how you've interpreted that passage in the past, but I want to suggest to you that you interpret it as seeing only that fourth kind of soil was a genuine Christian. All of the other kinds of soil, the hard soil, the rocky soil, the thorny soil, those were talking about those who looked like Christians that were part of the visible church for a while, but after time, the thorns choked out the good seed. The shallow um, system, the shallow soil burned out the good seed. So, falling away from what? From professed faith and repentance. Falling away like what? Well, like watered land that produces a useful crop versus watered land that produces thorns and thistles. That kind of land is called worthless. All you got to do is look at Matthew 7 and Matthew 13, those examples that Jesus gave. It is near to being cursed. I wonder if the author says that because of Jesus' parable in, in, uh, in chapter 13 of Luke where he talks about a tree that hadn't bear, borne fruit in a long time and the owner says, cut it down. No fruit, cut it down. And then the, the gardener, the cultivator says, can we give it one more year? Let me dig around the roots and dig them up. Let me put fertilizer. Let me water it. Let me give it special attention. And if next year it hasn't brought forth fruit, then we'll cut it down. The amazing patience of God, the kindness of God that would say, well, it's near to being cursed, but it's not cursed yet. And then it's burnt. Matthew 7, 19, that's the, that's the end of those that produce no fruit. You, it's good for nothing. You might as well burn it down. So they burn that patch of land and they start over hoping for after plowing and watering and fertilizing, then maybe it'll bring forth a crop. Okay, so what? And that's where we need to end. 
falling away, so what? I'm not going to fall away. I'm a true Christian, so I don't have any worries here. Really? You sure? On what are you basing your confidence? My point this morning is not to take away your confidence. My point this morning is to give you a true and a well-grounded confidence rather than a shaky, uh, hope so, whistling in the dark kind of confidence. And this I can do from verses 9 through 12. Though we speak in this way, about the possibility of falling away and the impossibility of repentance, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you do and as you still do. In verses 9 and 10, we're learning that this author has assurance of better things for his audience, most of them. It's like, I, I, I'm not saying that, and that's where people get this idea of a hypothetical case that he's given, but I don't think it's hypothetical. I think he's saying, I don't think most of you are going to fall into this case, but some of you are in danger of it. And this isn't the first time he's warned them. He warned them in chapter 3, in chapter 4, even chapter 2 he's made this warning. He'll warn them again in chapter 10 and in chapter 12 of Hebrews. There are strong warning passages about the real possibility of falling away. And he wants to make sure that they don't do it. But he doesn't think most of them are going to fall away. And he loves them. He calls them beloved. It's the only mention of that word in the entire book of Hebrews. But I love you guys. I don't think these bad things of you. I'm not bringing all of this up now to exhort you. I'm bringing it all up to encourage you. So I hope I can change my tone and let us know that we're all in this together and we all need the Holy Spirit's help to grow on until the end. Assurance of better things. What's that assurance based on? In verse 10, it's based on that God is not unjust. God sees what you're doing um, in his name. And he, he appreciates that. Not one cup of cold water given in Jesus' name will fail to have its reward. God's not unjust, and you are not unfruitful. He sees your fruit, and the fruit takes the form of ministry or works that you're doing for his name, and the love that you show for other brothers for his name's sake, that you're loving people. So your active ministry and your love for the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ count as fruit for your claim that, no, you're truly in. You're truly in. I have a hope of better things for you. In fact, a desire for four things in you. Just as there were four conditions, four verbs that were given in chapters uh, four through verses four through six, now there are four characteristics that are specified in verses eleven and twelve that he thinks are positive, and this is where we should end, and it's good for us to end with these verses. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. What are the four things that are better? These are better things. The good things were the four verbs. These are better things. Those would be earnestness. Think of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Be diligent to make your calling and election sure. Be diligent. Give yourself to it. Don't fall asleep at the switch. Don't get comfortable and get swept down river by the current. No, no, you have to keep a clear idea of where am I going, where does the Lord want me to go, and I'm swimming against that current in order to get there, fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil. I'm going to be earnest. Second of the four things, full assurance. 
full assurance of hope that I've got a hope of heaven. I don't think I'm of those that are going to be cursed. I have a hope that God, by his grace, will take me to heaven. So that if we confess Jesus is Lord, we have eternal life. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So full assurance. I want you to grow in assurance. I want you to have blessed assurance. Third, faith. Faith. It's through faith that we inherit the promises. He is anticipating Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of fame of faith that we'll see. I want you to be imitators of those people who truly believe God and hung in there. And then fourth, patience or perseverance. The one who endures to the end will be saved, said Jesus in Matthew 10, 22. Or just look back in Hebrews a slight bit and you can see the same emphasis on endurance, on hanging in there. Uh, chapter 3, verse 14. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We don't have assurance of salvation because of our beginning. Just because you had a good beginning, that's not the ground of your assurance. It's the end. So hang in there until the very end. That's how we will have the full assurance. All right. Run to maturity, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the, of the majesty of God. Consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners or hostility of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. That conclusion in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, is really the takeaway and the conclusion of Hebrews chapter 6. Fix your eyes on Jesus and run with endurance the race that is set before us. And as you do, and as I do, and as we spur one another along in that race, we will have a full assurance of hope. A full confidence that we know Jesus genuinely and we're bearing fruit, not as much as we'd like, but enough. And we have faith in his promise that if we put our faith in him, he will indeed save us.